Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in song and praise of our great God. And now we turn to his word to see him here in John chapter 3. Turn with me to John chapter 3, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. I think it's a text you're well aware of, you're familiar with, and a text yet that we, we must return to time and time again. And so I'm eager to open God's word and to see its truth as seen here. John 3, beginning in verse 1 and going to verse 15. The word of God reads, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe them, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Pray with me, Father, as we turn to Your Word, we are grateful yet again, another opportunity to behold Your truth and Your glory, and to see it most clearly here through these words of our precious Savior. Each and every one of us needs to heed to the message this morning. One not of self-improvement, one not of being better, one not of trying harder, but one of being made new, one of grace, and one that we could never achieve for ourselves, but one that has been granted to us because God has so loved the world that he gives us his son. Help us to abide in Christ and help us to believe in him now and forevermore. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, as we turn to John chapter 3, it is quite a weighty discussion and conversation that we enter into in this text. We find ourselves here, a question 
uh, that not only is at the lips of this rabbi, this Pharisee, this great ruler of the Jews, but I think it's the question that each and every single one of us needs to ask. Here we turn and we begin to endeavor into this conversation Jesus has with a man that is uniquely important because it's important to all of us. It's on the heart and mind of one who is a great teacher in Israel, but it's of importance because it matters not only for him, but it matters also for you. The great subject that is before us is said by some theologians to be the greatest doctrine, the greatest truth in the entire Bible. What we're about to study and dive into is perhaps if you know anything about Jesus, you should know this. This subject that we're about to discover and this subject that we're about to unearth and mine into is the one that matters most in your life. There are a lot of things that you can know about God and those things would matter. You can know about God's sovereignty. You can know about God's justice. You can know about God's goodness. You can know about God's promises. You can know about God's deliverance and you can know about God's redemption. And all these things matter because of what Jesus says here. His goodness, his promises, his mercy, his grace, his sovereignty, his power, and his will are made known to us by the reality that God has made it possible through his son to make us new. That's the message that we see before us in this conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. It's the greatest need in all of humanity. I know that we tend to try to fix things on our own. And so in the world that's broken around you, you see all kinds of laws and legislation and rules and ways that we can try to fix the world all kind of humanitarian efforts, all kinds of representation of people and affirmation of people so that in that way we can approve of one another and affirm of one another and make the world a better place. Maybe you do that for yourself, even as you enter into a place like this. You show up here thinking, if I go to church and if I read my Bible and if I pray and if I sing with people and if I talk to people about God, I'm okay with God. Friends, the answer for this world and the answer for you isn't to try, isn't to do, but it is to believe. John has made it his purpose in this gospel to show you a Jesus that would make it irresistible on your part to believe in him. To demonstrate to you a Jesus that you cannot do anything with him but believe in him. He presents to you a Jesus that is the only solution to man's greatest problem. That while every single one of us is born with a heart that goes against God, defies God, rejects God, disobeys God, cares nothing for God, in steps Jesus. Not simply to clean us up, not to make us better, not to bring some kind of improvement into our lives, but to grant us new life in him. In this text that we have before us today, Jesus shows us 
that the life he offers is one that only he can give. Jesus shows us the importance of eternal life, his life. And he shows us that that's not simply about heaven being a place that we will go to one day. It's about a a people who are made new even now in the present. Just as we were born once in this world to go into God's new world, we must be born again. The most important thing that each and every single one of us faces is this pressing question. Are you born again? Have you been made new? That a Christian far surpasses someone who's been cleaned up or rinsed off. They're new. The old has passed away and the new has come. I want us to see that this morning in this text in three key ways. Number one, we're going to see it by means of this man, Nicodemus. And we're going to talk about it in this way, the agony of a religious life. The agony of a religious life. Let's look at this new birth, this born-again reality for all of us that we all need, first by looking at this man, Nicodemus, and look at the agony with which he approaches Jesus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now first note with me, as we enter into chapter 3, it is related to what came before it. It isn't inconsequential, it isn't unimportant that we read in chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew that which was in man. And so now, Here's a man. Here is a a person of great status and reputation amongst his fellow people. He he seems to be a, a good man, a decent man, a religious man. And yet he is like the rest of them. He too is in need of Jesus. He too is in need of the grace that Jesus offers. He steps into this scene having questions even as Jesus declares him to be later on in verse 9, verse 10, the great teacher of Israel. Here's someone who knows a lot about God. He's not simply a teacher in Israel. He is the teacher in Israel. It's as if to say, of all the men who have instructed the people of God so far, this guy here knows more than the rest of them. Nicodemus comes with a great reputation And yet great reputation can still have great need. And so in steps Nicodemus, this man in need of Jesus. He's a man noted to us as being of the Pharisees. And if you understand who those people are, you can know that they are those who were religious leaders in their day. They had a great responsibility to teach people of God and ensure that people live for God. It's noted to us this way so that we can understand the person before us knows a lot about God already. This person is well instructed, well informed as to the person of God and what God desires and what God requires. Nicodemus knows much about God. Not only so, it's noted here as well in verse 1 
He's a ruler of the Jews. And in studying that, you can find that this probably notes him as being part of a group known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would have been a a court, a group of men, 70 plus one, the high priest, who would have run all kinds of stuff in the land of Israel and would have given all kinds of counsel and and settled civil disputes. They would have also had some religious stake in the community. And so it's not just that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. There's about 6,000 of those. He's also a ruler of the Jews, of which there's only 70. And of both these groups, he's the only one that seemingly comes to Jesus with his questions. These groups of people, they typically don't like Jesus. And yet Nicodemus finds it in his heart to come to Jesus with his greatest questions. He has things that he wants to ask of this man. This one who's noted in his society, in his community, as having great intellect and great wisdom great insight into who God is, he has a question for a man who's going around town who not many know of, but they're beginning to know this Jesus. So verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him. Now it's debated why it is that Nicodemus, this great man amongst the people, has to come to Jesus by night. Some quickly point out that perhaps he's ashamed of having to come to Jesus. Here he is, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, one who even Jesus recognizes as the teacher of Israel, and here he comes with questions. And not only that, as the reputation that he has and his peers being those who don't like Jesus, don't care for Jesus, how is it that he's going to Jesus with his questions? So maybe he's coming by night because he's a bit ashamed of his own circumstances, As much as he knows, he still finds himself going to Jesus. He doesn't want to be found out. He doesn't want people to know. That could be a possibility. Another would be this. If Jesus is doing the kinds of stuff that he does at a wedding in Cana, and Jesus by day is flipping tables in the temple, Jesus seems to be a really busy guy. And so Nicodemus maybe comes by night simply because now he'll have uninterrupted time with Jesus. Personally, I think that's where Nicodemus is coming from. I think Nicodemus has a question that he knows will take time to answer. Nicodemus, being a religious person and being someone that everybody looks up to, he comes by night because he has something important and pressing that he must bring to Jesus and he must spend quality time with him. And so he comes by night. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Perhaps... Nicodemus has heard of what Jesus did at Cana. Maybe more plausible, more realistic is that Jesus Jesus is seen in the temple is something that Nicodemus is aware of, which also can be considered a sign of Jesus. He comes in and cleanses the temple. We talked about last week. This is something that is messianic. The one who would come deliver God's people from their sins and from their oppression was to be one who would cleanse the temple, who would cleanse the people. Nicodemus is putting one one and one together and saying, maybe this is him. 
You notice, though, that in there, there really isn't a question, right? But Jesus provides an answer to him. And I think Jesus provides an answer because though Nicodemus isn't able to formulate a question, Jesus knows why Nicodemus has come. That great reality at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus knows the heart of man gives Jesus the insight and the wisdom as Nicodemus approaches him with this statement to understand exactly what Nicodemus is here looking for. And you probably know what this is like when someone brings to you a statement, but you know that behind that is some kind of implied question. If we were to sit here and I were to have a donut in front of my son Ezra, he's very good at this. He'll come up to me and say, wow, I've never had a donut before. And I'll just look at him like, what? You've had a million donuts before. And so one, he's not telling the truth. But two, it's really a question. Can I have some of your donut? Because I've never had one before. In that statement is an implied question. And here enters Nicodemus with just a simple statement. Jesus, we've heard of what you can do. We've even seen it. And it testifies to us that you certainly must come from God. Statement. Jesus answers, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So then what was Nicodemus' question? I think through divine wisdom, Jesus shows us the question burning at Nicodemus' heart is that in spite of all this religion, in spite of all this wisdom, in spite of all this knowledge, in spite of all this reputation, in spite of all the people who come to Nicodemus with their questions, in spite of all the people that look up to Nicodemus because of his righteousness, Nicodemus still feels like something is falling short. Nicodemus still feels like he hasn't done enough. He still feels like if you ask him the question about will he be in the kingdom with God, he doesn't know if he can say yes. This is the agony of a religious life. It's an agony that some of you in this room choose to live by day in and day out. Some of you are so good at playing the part of a Christian. You're so good at doing those things that will demonstrate to other people that you and God have a relationship. And yet you never stop to believe the words that Jesus says here. You take an old heart and you continue to adorn it with good things, but you don't adorn it with the one who is good. And you don't allow him to transform you. You would rather bring to God all your religious deeds all your religious thoughts, all your religious aspirations. You would rather try to prove yourself to God rather than believing a God who's already proved himself to you. This is Nicodemus' great agony. And it's a sign to all of us that being religious never has assured anyone of knowing God in true and saving faith. That doing the right thing has never brought the kind of assurance that can only be found in Jesus. The agony of a religious life 
is that it offers you externally this idea that you know God all the while internally knowing that you still fall short. This is Nicodemus's problem. And I wonder if it's some of your problem. You've grown up in the church. You've been coming here for a long time. You've been sitting in this room forever. You've done the Awana or Adventure Club and you've come up from junior high into high school and you're excited about the next steps and you read and you read and you read. You, you participate in small group. You have all these things that you do, but have you been born again? The answer to a life that's agonized by religion is freedom and faith. The answer to one heart that still has questions no matter how hard it's tried is to believe Jesus' words here. And it's not that I need to be better. It's not that I need to do more. It's not that I need to try to show others that I'm truly what I say I am. It's that I should believe that Jesus can take an old heart and do away with it and give me a new one. This is the agony of a religious life. Secondly, let's look at here Jesus' answers to Nicodemus. And we'll see this by means of the absolute necessity of the new birth. The absolute necessity of a new birth. Religious people will only find peace when they're born again. You can try and try and try, or you can believe. These words here spoken by Jesus. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's the answer to the hopelessness of religion? What's the answer to the agony of trying and trying but still falling short? What's the answer to a life and a heart that you know as much as you do that's good, you still have a lot in there that's bad? The answer is singular. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus puts it here emphatically and he puts it decisively. To see the kingdom, it's to know that you will see it come to fruition. It's not something Nicodemus could see in the present, but it's something he was looking forward to. That's why he came to Jesus in the first place. He comes agonized over this reality. Can I be sure that I'll get there? I've done so much. I've led so many people. I know the scriptures so well. Unless you're born again, there's no hope that you'll see it. No person born once can see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. I love how J.C. Ryle puts it. To possess the privileges of Judaism, a man only needed to be born of the seed of Abraham after the flesh. But to possess the privileges of Christ's kingdom, a man must be born again of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Jesus presents to us here. There's no hope of a future with God if you have not yet been born again by God. 
There's no hope of a heaven for you if on earth you have not given your life to believing in what he promises. Nicodemus is so confused by this answer. How is it that a man who's done so much for God still needs to do more? What else could he possibly do? Be born again? And what does that even mean? So Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And some people read this and they think, Nicodemus is smart as he am. This sounds really dumb. Like, obviously, you're not going to be born again physically. And I don't think Nicodemus intends to communicate that he thinks that's possible. Nicodemus is saying, this is so impossible. How is that even going to take place? What would that even look like? So Jesus doubles down on his answer. Jesus answers in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, here we find this decisive answer from Jesus. Very singular by nature. There's but one way that you can enter into God's kingdom. And it's not only being born again, but that's equated with being born of water and the Spirit. What that means is that those who are to enter the kingdom of God must be cleansed by God and must be given the Spirit of God. This is the great promise of God. This is what He's always said He would do for His people. You can look at Ezekiel chapter 36. Israel hoping for a future where they will be rescued by God. What is it that God promises to them? Ezekiel 36 verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. But what does being cleaned up like that look like? What would it look like to be cleansed in that kind of way? Ezekiel 36, 26 answers for us. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. In order to see what Jesus is describing here, you must believe that you have that kind of need. In order to understand what Jesus is saying, you must recognize that to live in a way that would honor God, to live in a way that would please God, to live in a way that isn't religious but is faithful, you must allow God to perform this spiritual open heart surgery in you. That you don't need to be dusted off. You need to be made new. God has promised us that and Jesus came to grant us that. Now in Christ, the promises of God have found their fulfillment. Those who were promised to be made new can now be made new through the Son. And so Jesus confounds this religious man with his answer. The answer is not to be better. It's not to try harder, but it's to receive from God what no man could do for himself. It is to be born of water and the Spirit. Because unless you are born again in God, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. No one will see God who is not brought to the kingdom by God. 
Friends, I don't know what you trust in to get to heaven. But the message this morning is simple for you. If you trust in anything apart from God and his promises through his son, you will not be there with him. To be with God for all eternity is to believe in his son as he's revealed himself now. To be assured that one day you will live with God is to know in the present that he has made it possible to be with him because Christ has come. That's why Jesus continues here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus is so confused that it's apparently Jesus can see it on his face. And so he says, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. I mean, that must have thrown Nicodemus off. He, he was at the very top of society. He, of all people in society, knew God best, was closest to God. And here Jesus is saying, you need to be, everything needs to start over from scratch. None of that's worth anything. That doesn't do anything to help you. You need to be born again completely. Don't marvel that I say be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The answer to Nicodemus' question, this man who seemingly is so great before God, is to recognize all of his greatness amounts to nothing in comparison to who Jesus is. The answer is not a makeover. The answer is not behavioral modification. The answer was not for Nicodemus to become more moral. The answer was not for him to be even more religious. The answer was not for him to produce some kind of change in himself that would please God. The answer was for him to go to the one to whom he came with this question and believe every word he says. That if Jesus says you must be born again, that's exactly what Nicodemus would need. And that's exactly what you and I would need. We need new life. We need the old self to go away and we need the new life to exist. And so maybe we can sum up the answer given here by Jesus in this way. What does it take to be born again? What would that look like? What is Jesus telling us about this new birth? Well, number one, to be born again is a must. It's not an option. It's of necessity. It's not a suggestion. Many people think they'll get into heaven because they were awesome, and that's not how it works. Many people think they'll get into heaven because they knew who Jesus was, and that too is not how it works. Many people know about Jesus. Few believe in him and receive him as Lord. So if you were to be born again, it's of necessity that you take God at his word, both his written word and his incarnate word, and that when you behold Jesus, the one who cries out to you, be born again, you heed his word. Secondly, number one, if you're to be born again, it's a must, not an option. Secondly, to be born again is of the spirit, not of the flesh. It's of the spirit, not of the flesh. 
Here, Jesus makes it very clear. Every single person in this room has need of what he's talking about. It's evident to me that each of you is made of flesh, which puts you in the running for needing to be saved. The fact that each and every single one of you has been born once proves to me that you must be born again. Because so long as we are in this flesh, we are living a life of sin, a life of dishonor, a life of displeasure unto God. So you don't need a makeover. You need to be made new. And for that to happen, it will not happen in our own strength. It will not happen because we will it to. Look back at John chapter 1. What does he say here in verse 12? To all who did receive him. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All of us here, born of the will of man, the question is have you been born of the will of God? All of us here, born in the flesh, But the question is, are you born of the Spirit? John 6, 63 will go on to say, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that Jesus has spoken to us are spirit and life. Friends, if you are to be born again, don't try. You can't do it. If you are to be born again, don't trust in yourself. It will avail you nothing. If you are to be born again, your good deeds will not count for anything before the Lord. If you are to be born again, it will be because the Spirit of God transforms your heart to be new in Christ. Thirdly here, to be born again is of present power, not only future blessing. To be born again is a must, not an option. It's of the spirit, not of the flesh. And it's present power, not only future blessing. Maybe you noticed in verses, verse 8, this random conversation about wind. And it's not random at all. It's an illustration that Jesus is presenting to Nicodemus in order to demonstrate to him the kind of work that Jesus does, that God does in the hearts of those who believe in him. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You ever tried to catch the wind? You ever try to hold it in your hands? You ever maybe try to grab a jar and see if you can get a little bit of it and hold on to it? Did you succeed? No, because you didn't even try. You did none of those things because you know that would be foolish. You have no idea where the wind is or why it's going the way it's going. But you know it's there, don't you? In fact, this reminds us a bit of something we've studied this last semester, Ecclesiastes 11.5. No one knows how the Spirit enters into the womb of a baby. In the same way, we don't know which ways the wind goes. Those two things are synonymous. 
It's interesting because in the Greek here, the word for spirit and the word for wind, the same in the Hebrew, those two words are actually the same. Wind and spirit are the same word. No one knows the way that the wind works. I like to golf now. I'm not good, but I like to do it. And many in this room can tell you I'm not good. Unless I'm on Tim Brenner's team, and then we annihilate people. I'm not good at golf. And when you golf, apparently you're supposed to pay attention to which way the wind is blowing. Because if you hit the ball and the wind is blowing it right, and you hit it right, you're going to hit a lady's house. Not because I've done that. (laughs) I wouldn't do that. But I've done that. So you try to pay attention to where the wind is. You go out there with a golf club. You get ready to hit it. And you're wondering, where's the wind? Well, you don't look for wind, do you? What do you look for? You look at trees and you see which direction they're being moved. If you're Tim, you pluck grass out of the ground, you throw it in the air and see which ways it goes. If you're smart, you look at the flag that's down on the green and you see which direction the wind is blowing it. You can't see the wind, but you can see what the wind is doing. And so it is with every person who is born again. For every person out there that clamors that they can't see God, they should be able to see you and see in you that God is active, moving, that God has done something new in you. We don't need to see the wind to know that it's there. Neither do we need to see God to know that he is real. It is the present power of God in our lives that proves him to the world. It is that God has taken sinners and made them saints that demonstrates his power. You want to know that God's real? His spirit has transformed the hearts of people and made them completely new. You might not know where the wind is, Jesus say, but you sure can hear it sound. You can hear it rustling in the bushes and in the trees. You can see it moving things around. In the same way, you might not know where the Spirit is, but you can tell by its people. Friends, this is a call to each and every one of us. That if we're born again, it is truly to live for Him. Everyone who is born is born to grow up and to do something, right? Each and every one of you is a testimony to that. You were born 13 to 18 years ago, and here you still are. You don't just sleep every day. You don't just lock yourself up in your room every day. You do stuff. You show that you're truly who you are by living. And so a Christian is one who's been born again to new life. Evidence of being born again is that the Spirit is at work in you. It is as Galatians 5.16 says. I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Spirit will produce in you a holy life, a pure life, one that mimics the cleansing and the purification that Jesus grants to all who are born again. And if you're wondering, well, how can I know that I'm walking by the Spirit? How can I know that the Spirit is at work in me? Well, because the Spirit is not as mysterious as we make Him out to be. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
But look at these words here in Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Do you want to know that the Spirit lives in you, moves in you, and pushes you toward a life of righteousness that is worthwhile before God? Put on the Lord Jesus to be born again and to experience this kind of present power that assures us a future blessing is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you have heard much about him, and yet you act like he's not there. Some of you can see the work of Jesus around you, and yet you ignore him and dismiss him. Try to do that to a hurricane and see how that works out. Try to step into the eye of a storm and see if the wind won't knock you over. Friends, if that's true of us with a storm, how much more true of us? Will that be before God? You can act like God is not there. You can act like God isn't real. You can act like God isn't who he says he is. But he most assuredly is. And we know it because Jesus has come to rescue us from our sins and to make us new. Some of you have pushed on Jesus for far too long. Make him Lord of your life. He is worthy of it. And we recognize this here because third and finally, we find the assurance of this new birth. What hope is there that those who trust in God can truly be born again? That when Jesus declares that that's what we must do, that it's of necessity For anyone who desires to live with God in eternity, it's it's necessary for them to be born again. How can we know that's possible? It's here for us in verses 9 through 15. Nicodemus asked that same question. How can these things be? How is this possible? How can we be sure that this can happen? How How are we supposed to expect this to take place? Jesus answers, aren't you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus still doesn't have the wherewithal to understand what Jesus is talking about. And he asked this question because he's just not tracking yet. And Jesus calls him out on it, yes, but Jesus also gives him the answer. You want to know how these things can be? Because no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What hope is there that you would be born again? It's that Jesus came, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. It's that Jesus paints a picture here even of what took place long ago with Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. You can turn there quickly in Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers 21, we get the 
portrait of what Jesus is describing here. The people are judged by God for their wickedness and their evil and their complaints and their malice. And so God judges them by sending serpents that bite them and they experience that venom and they all are dying off. The people come to Moses in verse 7 of chapter 21 and they say, We have sinned for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prays for the people and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent 